You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Guys, we live in a deceptive world. And there's one fact that can remind us of this every time. The fact is resonates. <laughs> According to a recent study cited by CNBC, nearly 60% of Americans admit to having outright lied on their resumes. Nearly 6 out of 10. The study also showed that men are more likely to lie on a resume than women. Ladies are like, mm-hmm. But both uh, men and women admit to lying at a higher than 50% rate on, uh, at some point on the resumes in their history. Uh, this study even showed that one in six people, this is remarkable, one in six people have hired family members, friends, or actors to portray references or old bosses in order to get a job. And this is the people that will admit it, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that's probably going to hire them. And the reason people persist in this type of behavior is because the working world actually rewards this type of deception. There's a guy who wrote a book all about the dynamic of deception in the workplace. His name is Frederick George Bailey. His book is called Humbuggery and Manipulation, The Art of Leadership, which is an incredible title. He illustrates in the book that lying is often a requirement for occupational success and that those who lie less are found to be less successful in their careers. That's our culture. And it's not just seen in our job applications or in our workplaces. Everywhere we look, we're being conditioned to put together some sort of deceptive image of ourselves, of our lives, of our thoughts, or our speech. We're deceptive in our speaking with one another. We embellish our lives to make them sound more impressive to people. We say things like, oh, I'm good or I'm fine when we're really not good and not fine. We make ourselves the hero or the victim in every one of our stories. We often present a version of ourselves that's far from the truth. And we're deceptive in our social and political language as well. The leaders we choose only add to this deceptive culture. As an example, in each of their first 100 days in office, our current sitting president and the previous president, 50% of their statements of fact given were either entirely or mostly false. This was found by independent fact checkers. Republican and Democrat, half of their statements, entirely or mostly false. There's a Nobel Prize winning author named Harold Pinter who talks about this. He uses the term political theater to describe this reality. It's all just play acting. It's all putting on a show to get uh, praise or power. In his Nobel lecture, Art, Truth, and Politics, he said, the majority of politicians are interested not in truth, but in power and in the maintenance of that power. And to maintain that power, it's essential that people remain in ignorance, that they live in ignorance of the truth, even the truth of their own lives. What surrounds us, therefore, is a vast tapestry of lies upon which we all feed. And this culture is training our kids to be deceptive as well. There's another recent study that showed that 9 out of 10 middle schoolers admitted to cheating regularly on their homework or on exams. And before we start to think that, well, man, that's out there in the world, right? And we're here in church, and we don't do that sort of thing, right? No, this often leaks into our spiritual lives. I think how many times you've had an argument with a spouse or a friend or a kid on the way to church, and then you step out in the parking lot, and someone asks you how you're doing, you're like, I'm great. Life is so good. Hashtag blessed, right? That's what we like to do in our Christian subculture. It's rife with habits of projecting an image of piety or contentment or goodness that's disconnected from the truth of who we are. 
And I've talked to countless of folks who have said that it's really hard to enter into church when that's the case. Because it feels like I have to be put together, and I'm not as put together as everyone else, so there's not really a place for me here. These aren't just harmless white lies, you guys. Our tendency towards deception is actively harming us. It creates a culture of mistrust. In the U.S. right now, only about 30% of people would affirm the statement, most people can be trusted. We're the sort of people who are skeptical of everything, we're defensive or standoffish or reactionary. Think about it in your own life. When you have a stranger come to your door and knock on the door when you're not expecting them, what do you do? Hide in terror, right? <laughs> Don't open that door, Just be quiet. Sometimes in our house, we run down the hall and like peek out the window to see who it is, right? See if it's worth answering the door. We find it really hard just to open our door to someone because we can't trust them. We've been deceived too many times. And this sort of deception, it prevents people from truly knowing themselves and one another. See, if our speech or our action is not aligned with the reality of who we are, then we become divided people. We're unable to really experience connection with our fellow humans. There's a great quote from an author named Frederick Buechner that summarizes this well. He says, there's perhaps nothing that so marks us as humans as the gift of speech. By speaking, we can reveal the hiddenness of thought. We can express the subtlest as well as the most devastating of emotions. We can heal, we can make poems, we can pray. All of which is to say that we can speak the truth. The truth of what it is to be ourselves, to be with each other, to be in the world. And such speaking as that is close to what being human is all about. And what makes lying an evil is not only that the world's deceived by it, but that we are dehumanized by it. We ruin our connection with one another. When we believe or exude lies or deception, we destroy our humanity. We bring death and decay upon ourselves. And that's definitely happening out there in the world, right? But that's also happening right here in our hearts all the time. What we see in the world is an extension of our inner lives. Our human experience is this constant tug of war. A tug of war between truth and life and lies and death. And that tendency, this battle with deception, it's not new. It's been happening for as long as humans have been around. In fact, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see that a central part of his mission in the world was to expose the spiritual components of deception, of this battle with deception and then lead a community of people who are freed from that deception, who live truthful, free, trusting lives, and restore a world in truth and trust. He actually mentions this in a conversation he has with some folks in his day who are particularly prone to religious deception. In John chapter 8, he says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then just a few chapters later, he makes clear what the truth is. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, Jesus said, following him, receiving his love and grace in our lives, and then allowing him to shape every part of what we do, it's going to transform us into a people of truth and life in a world of death, deception. Friends, victory in the battle between truth and deception is not won just by getting a good education. Though that's a good thing to do. It's not won just by getting the right people in power, though that is a worthwhile consideration. The battle that we have with deception is one and only one when the deepest core of our human person, our soul, is reoriented towards the person and character of Jesus Christ. And that was his mission. His mission was to build a community that was reoriented. His death and resurrection was about implementing the kingdom of God and then inviting us to partner with him in that kingdom. 
The people who follow Jesus, they're called to be people who ruthlessly eliminate deception from their midst and live as deeply truthful and honest people in the world. We're in the middle of a teaching series here at Midtown, and we're exploring what this new community of Christ followers look like. We're calling the series, What's Next? Because it comes after, that's the next, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we see in the book of Acts this amazing picture of these Christ followers who have oriented themselves towards truth, towards trust, towards love and care, and towards the restoration of a deceiving world. But today, we're going to see that, well, things weren't always sunshine and rainbows for them. It wasn't always easy, because deception has a way of creeping its way even into this amazing restorative community. And so we're going to learn in this story that we, as Christians, are called to be people who ruthlessly eliminate deception from our hearts and our lives in order to participate with Jesus in his restoration. With me? All right, friends, open your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 5. Uh, actually, we're going to finish at the end of chapter 4. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, and then we'll read through uh, verse 11 in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, you can follow the words behind me on the screen. Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the whole group of those who believed in Jesus were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gained the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. And now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear, makes sense, great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yeah, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all those who heard about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Mother's Day, guys. Yeah? We figured we'd have a nice, feel-good passage for everyone, so welcome to church. But really, all jokes aside, this sort of story in the Bible can be really jarring for us, especially in the 21st century world. Tough to stomach. 
See, many of us love the bits of the Bible that talk about love, talk about peace, talk about caring for your neighbor. Those are easy for us, right? But then we come to something like this, deception, scandal, justice, and death, and it rattles us in some way. And the result is that it often leads us uh, to do one of two things. Either we ignore these passages. We just kind of move past them, right? Many of you who have been raised in the church may never have heard this passage actually taught on. We just kind of skip past it, right? We'll just get back to the, the things that we really like and make us comfortable. Or, for some of us, it can actually lead us the other direction. It can just lead us to say, oh, let's just discredit this whole thing. I knew it was a ruse, right? This whole love and peace and grace thing, this is, this is really who God is. A smiter. But before we jump to a response, one way or the other, to a passage like this, I think it's helpful to remember what this sort of passage is doing by remembering what stories are actually designed to do and what good storytelling does for us. Remember, this is a story. Yes, sometimes good stories are actually intended to be jarring to us. Sometimes that feeling we get is actually exactly what the author wants us to get. Sometimes artists try to rattle us. As an example, we host these movie nights here at Midtown. If you're not coming to the next one, come to the next one. It's a really great movie. We'd love to have you there. We watch these movies, and those of you that know me know that I'm not choosing movies oftentimes that have neatly wrapped up endings or nice little conclusions that make us feel good. And oftentimes, we'll finish a movie, and at the end, we'll start to talk about it. And somebody will be like, I didn't like that ending, or I didn't like what they did with that character. But instead of just leaving it there, we start to poke into those questions a little bit. Why? Why didn't you like it? Why did that rattle you in some way? And in our discussion, what we often find is that the film is actually intending for you not to like it. That's the whole point of the story. The whole point of the story is to rattle you awake to some truth. It's not trying to get you to prefer it or feel comfortable. That's the whole purpose of the movie. And so that feeling is actually exactly what you're supposed to feel in the story. And that's exactly what this story of Ananias and Sapphira is doing for us here. This isn't supposed to be a story that we show up to and say, ah, oh, how sweet, this married couple dropping dead in the church. Oh, how comfortable, right? The whole point is that it's shaking us awake to a couple important truths. First, it's shaking us awake to the reality that the Bible doesn't skip over the bad stuff. Remember, they didn't have to put this story in our text. They didn't have to put it in there. And in fact, if they were making the right like, publicity move, they'd probably be like, eh, we can kind of scratch that from the record. Right? That's what we often like to do with our brokenness in our lives. We just say, well, let's shove that under the rug. But they didn't. They kept it in there. Because the Bible wants us to know that well, the God of the universe and the Word of God steps right into the mess and the brokenness. And that's something we need to know because our lives are not always just good or just bad. Our lives range the full spectrum of emotions. Mother's Day is a great example of that, right? This day is not just good or bad for most of us in this room. Church, entering into church, is not often just good or bad. Many of you, it takes great courage to step into a place like this because of the bad you've experienced in a church before. Because the truth of our lives is that it's always bigger than just good or bad, and the scriptures dealing with that is a huge credibility marker for the scriptures. It goes straight into the mess and then directs us on what it looks like to experience truth and healing in life in the middle of it. So that's one thing that this story is shaking us away to. But another thing the story is shaking us away to it's shaking us awake to a wrong way sign so that we can get back onto the right road. If you've done any driving in our American freeway system, you've seen probably at some point a sign like this. Wrong way. And if you're driving along and you pass one of those signs, is your immediate emotional response like, oh, how sweet is that? A nice little sign, right? It's pretty. 
No, your emotional, emotional response is probably going to result in some words that I shouldn't say publicly in front of everyone, right? You're going to whip that car around as quickly as possible. The wrong way sign is not trying to make you comfortable. It's not. It's trying to shake you away. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira is trying to do for us. It's a giant red wrong way sign to everyone of us. It's a reminder of a path that will lead us to a brutal wreck in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And this wrong way sign is proclaiming to all of us, if we want to be people who experience true, lasting life, we need to ruthlessly eliminate deception from our lives. And there's three ways that we see this is important in this story. We need to ruthlessly eliminate deception from our lives because it wrecks our relationship to ourselves, it wrecks our relationship to others, and it wrecks our relationship to God. To ourselves, to others, and to God. First, it wrecks our relationship to ourselves. Notice in this passage that Ananias and Sapphira is not this kind of split-apart, one-off story. It's actually connected to a story that came just before it. It's kind of similar to the dynamics of this story. We learn about a guy named Barney in the text. His name was Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas. I call him Barney. With me? Barney. Barney is said to have done something remarkable. He's said to have sold a field that belonged to him and then uh, to have brought the money so that it could be used by the church community, this new restorative community, uh, to care for the needy, the poor, and the vulnerable. And that's a really big deal in the ancient world. Because many of these Christians who were farmers, they were subsistence farmers, which means all of their farm, all of their land, all of their work was required to get them through their life. They were reliant upon their land. So what he's doing here is a remarkable act of trust. He's saying that I believe this community can take care of me, and I believe that my resources can be best used to care for the poor and the needy. So I'm going to give those things away. Remarkable act of generosity here from Barney. And his story is actually a specific example of what everyone in the early church was committed to doing. They didn't all sell everything, but they were all committed to a similar sort of generosity, a way of giving themselves away to their neighbors so that they could be loved, cared for, so that the vulnerable and the needy wouldn't stay that way. The text says that they were of one heart and soul, and that this unity was a declaration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, these people were oriented in the innermost parts of their being towards the radical story of Christ's love for the world. That's what prompted them to become these sort of people. They didn't wake up one day and said, hey guys, what if we just decided to be good to one another? What if we just, by our own humanity, kind of pulled ourselves up and made ourselves better? That's not how this worked. The way that they became this sort of community was, why, was by being transformed by the story of Jesus and then being unified in that story moving forward. And that's an important thing for us guys. The story that you believe about yourself, about the world around you, and about God, it shapes who you are. The truths that you believe about yourself, whether they're true or whether they're lies, they will shape you. And when we believe the story that Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose again to conquer all death and brokenness, and that our purpose as humans is to proclaim his work in the world, then it's going to shape everything we do. It's going to shape our property. It's going to shape our farm. It's going to shape our land. It's going to shape our actions. And this unified heart and soul meant that these people never considered anything that they had their own. It wasn't theirs. They said, this is a gift from God, and I'm going to give it away so that other people can experience God's love and grace. When they had a home or a table or a loaf of bread or a coat, they never said mine instead of yours. And that sort of lifestyle transformed the world around them. The world was split up into haves and have-nots, and everywhere the Christians went, those divisions were broken down. 
And that's all rooted in a radical assumption that's at the heart of the Christian faith. It runs right in the face of our hyper-individualized culture. So the world tells you that your true relationship to yourself, your true relationship to who you are in the innermost parts of your being, is found by self-determination, following your own heart, leading by your own instincts. That's what our world tells us. What it means to be human is self-determination. But there's something radically different happening for the church here. They say that what it means to be human, a true relationship with ourselves, is when we belong to one another, when we give ourselves away to the other. For the Jesus follower, our own life and health and well-being is wrapped up directly in the life and health and well-being of those around us. And so being truly human, having a right relationship to ourselves, involves being someone who supports and is supported by others. in mutual trust and community. It means connecting our well-being to the well-being of our neighbors. It's a fundamental aspect of our self-identity. There's a great poet and author named Wendell Berry who talks about this. He says, if we're looking for insurance against want and oppression, we'll find it only in our neighbor's prosperity and goodwill, and beyond that, in the good health of our worldly places, our homelands. If we were sincerely looking for a place of safety, for real security and success, then we would turn to our communities, And not the community simply of our human neighbors, but also of the water, earth, and air, plants and animals, all the creatures with whom our local life is shared. So it means to be human. That's right relationship to ourselves. But Ananias and Sapphira refuse to believe that truth. Instead, what they do is they use this situation of mutual care and love as an opportunity to advantage themselves at the expense of their neighbor. They're placing themselves first. They claim, they show up, and they claim that they sold the property and they're giving the entire amount to the church so that it can be used for the care of the poor and needy. But they intentionally hold a chunk back. We don't get details on exactly how much that is. They just intentionally hold, and that means that they're deceiving everyone around. And the problem in this passage, to be clear, it's not generosity. When Peter hears this or learns this truth and exposes it, he doesn't say, hey, you guys are being too stingy. He doesn't say you need to be more generous. He actually assumes that they didn't have to sell their property and they didn't have to give it to the church. He said that was all voluntary. You chose to do all of this. The brokenness here is not generosity or stinginess. It's lying. It's deceiving. And it's taking advantage of others with that deception. And that reveals this important assumption of Ananias and Sapphira. They believe a healthy relationship to themselves is one that looks out for them first. It's one that prioritizes themselves first. They want to have a certain reputation, right? So they want to appear more generous and they lie about how much they give. Or they want a certain amount of worldly security, so they appear to give some away, but they hoard it really for themselves. They're really thinking about themselves the whole way. They are, as St. Augustine would say, incurvitus in se, a Latin phrase which means turned inward on themselves. And all these attempts to protect themselves are actually wrecking They've tried so hard to grasp tightly onto securing life on their terms, for their purposes, for their ends, at the expense of their neighbor, and they end up losing their lives because of it. It should spark in our mind the words of Jesus in Luke 17. Whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will preserve it. And so death comes quite literally for them in the passage. The exposure of their deception leads to some sort of bodily failure. And again, we don't get a ton of details about how this works. We just know they die. And 
while that sort of immediate physical death may not always be the result for us when we are turned inward on ourselves, we do often experience emotional and relational deaths, spiritual deaths that can arrive when we're turned inward in that way. We experience a sort of death when we project a version of ourselves for the praise of others. Because then we become dependent on that praise. And when it goes away, we wither. We experience a sort of death when we're wrapped up in our worldly security. Because when you're wrapped up in your worldly security, that means that anytime something changes, an economy changes, a job changes, a home changes, it brings deep, deep anxieties. We experience this death and decay because we put all of our trust in our worldly security, in our stuff. We experience a sort of death when we constantly chase more. We get stuck on this hamster wheel of anxiety, trying always to obtain as much as we can and realizing it never satisfies. Because we all know the death and deception of being turned inward on ourselves. We prevent ourselves from becoming who we're made to be, and it wrecks our relationship with us. But the story doesn't stop there. This deception of Ananias and Sapphira, it also wrecks the relationship to others. See, when we dig into their deception, it's actually even more sinister than it looks on the surface. Think about how this would have worked. By saying that they gave more than they did, what they're implying is that, that they are now in more need than they actually are. Make sense? They've given away a ton, and that means that now they're in need. And in a community that is committed to caring for the needy and the vulnerable, that means that resources are going to be reallocated to Ananias and Sapphira. Because they've communicated to everyone that they're now in great need because of what they've given away. It's actually a really sinister thing. It's going to mean that funds that should be going to the real needy, to the real vulnerable, are getting reoriented to these people who aren't as needy and aren't as vulnerable. This isn't just a fib to make themselves look better. They're actually preventing money and resources and care from going to the right sorts of people so that it can go to them instead. This is quite literally the rich stealing from the poor in order to become more rich. And it's a slap in the face to anyone who really has need. And the text actually brings this out for us. In verses 2 and 3, the action of Ananias and Sapphira, it says that they kept back a portion of the funds. And the word that's used there is actually a really rare one in the New Testament. It's only used one other time in the book of Titus. And there, it means to steal. That's what Luke has in mind here in Acts. That they are stealing from the poor to benefit themselves. And while many of us in our lives may not literally deceive others to steal money from the poor... Although you should look out for that, I would say. That's coming up in your life. But there are often ways that we will withhold things of ours that actually prevents others from experiencing true life. We will withhold the gifts that we've been given. See, for the Christian, there's a fundamental assumption that pervades all reality. Everything we have is a gift from God. Your home, your income, your body, your breath, all of it is a gift from God. And that gift has been given so that we can, in turn, extend that gift and blessing to our neighbors so that all of us can live in right relationship to one another. And so when we withhold our gifts from others, and not just our money, but our time, our skill sets, our care, and our love, when we withhold those things, as Ananias and Sapphira do here, we actually rob our neighbors of the fullness of God, the fullness of life. There's a theologian named Lloyd John Ogilvy who talks about this in his commentary on Acts. He says, the Holy Spirit releases all the resources of God into the life of the believer, so that in response, they can release all of their resources to God. And then in turn, the Spirit utilizes those surrendered resources for the needs of the people in our lives. Not just our lands, but our love and affection, our caring and assistance, our 
listening and sharing our comfort and our courage. And any time we withhold ourselves in refusing to give affirmation and assurance, we sin against the family of God. Anytime that we withhold parts of ourselves, withhold our love for our care for our neighbors, we're sinning against them. Because God has given us those resources so that we can bless others. And so Ananias and Sapphira should make all of us in this room ask, where, right now in my life, might I be withholding gifts from my neighbor in some way or another? Whatever that means for you. And where might you be able to extend God's love in a new way to others? Let those questions sink through this week. And the text doesn't stop with just broken relationships with ourselves and others. It also continues uh, to illustrate how deception gives a brokenness to our relationship with God. Notice the strength of Peter's words when he calls out Ananias here. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's on the top of the list of things I never want anybody to ask me. Right? <laughs> and when we hear that word, Satan, it often conjures up different images in our head, usually like little cartoonish images, right? Like a pitchfork and horns and a red little devil, maybe the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulder. But those are very different and much more cartoonish than uh, what Peter and what Jesus has in mind when he refers to Satan in the New Testament. In the scriptures, and in this passage in particular, the word Satan isn't the name of a little red devil, it's actually a title, like Lord or King or Prince. When Satan is mentioned in this passage, it's preceded by a definite article, the Satan. And that title literally means accuser, opponent, or adversary. All over the scriptural imagination, the Satan, this evil spiritual being, this person, is actively at work opposing God's kingdom of true life and peace. And that Satan is trying to woo us to that side trying to woo us to death and deception, to prioritizing ourselves over others and preventing God's kingdom from coming into the world. In fact, in the passage that I mentioned earlier where Jesus is talking about the truth setting us free, in that same passage, he talks to these religious pretenders, these deceivers, and he says, your father is the father of lies, the devil. He equates this person to lies and deception. And that means that when we deceive others for our own benefit, what we're actually doing is partnering with an evil spiritual force that is actively at work opposing God's love and grace and kingdom. Deception is not just a little fib we tell someone else. It is a partnership in forces of evil. We all have a choice, friends, on how to respond in our world. We can give our thoughts and words and actions to the source of truth and life, or we can give those things to the source of lies and death. And it's important to note in this passage that Peter does actually say we have a choice. So that means we can never make the excuse the devil made me do it. Can never be a thing. Because right after this, notice in verse 4, he says, how is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He says that you actually have a choice to partner with God or not with God. And I inspire have a choice. They could be moved by truth and trust and love and care for their neighbor. And if they'd have chosen that path, it would have led to life for them and all around them. But instead, they chose to partner with the deceiver. They chose to prioritize themselves and deceive their neighbors and brought fracture to this beautiful mutual care and love. What Peter seems to be saying in this passage is that there's always a spiritual component to the ways that we behave towards ourselves and others. There's always a spiritual component. Our deception is never just a physical act or a verbal act we take. It is intimately connected to our spiritual health and life. And that means that every day we are always given an opportunity 
to partner with Jesus in bringing life or to partner with the deceiver in bringing death. Every day, we're given that choice. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And so the result in our lives is that we should start to ask some pertinent questions. Questions like, with whom does this deed or thought partner? How does this deed or thought define myself and others? To whom are we devoting our thoughts, our words, our actions? So, friends, deception, it leads to a wreck of Ananias and Sapphira's survivors' relationships at every level. Wrecks themselves, it wrecks others, and it breaks the relationship with God. But there's also profound hope and good news in this passage. Because as much as there's a battle going on, we also know that there's a victory that's already happened. That Jesus has already taken on the deceiver, has died on the cross, and has buried lies and deception, and has opened up a way by his spirit for us to live different sorts of lives. It's actually not entirely dependent on us. We do have a choice, but that choice is infused and in partnership with the spirit of God that lives amidst us. That spirit of God is always wooing us. And this passage reminds us of that. Deception doesn't win. Deception doesn't win the story. Ananias and Sapphira don't get to just keep going on and deceiving. Deception is defeated. And that's really good news, especially for those of us who have been deceived in our lives. This is like balm for a wounded soul. The times that we've been taken advantage of or the harm that's been done to us by deceptive people and structures. God is just and will expose and bring out all truth. You can bang And to those of us that are maybe aware of our own deceptions in our own lives, little or big, this is a reminder, this story, to return to God. It's a wrong way, son. Get back on the right road. Turn to God. Repent. Just turn around. Say, God, I've deceived my neighbor. I don't want to live this sort of way. I want to partner with you to bring life and flourishing. And he promises not only forgiveness, but the power through his spirit to work towards a new sort of way of being in the world. And so whatever it is for you, friends, if it's a pattern of untruthfulness or deception that you've allowed to pervade your relationship, maybe it's a, a deception you're believing about your identity, yourself. Maybe it's a deception towards God, putting on a religious front, but then kind of hiding all of the junk. Whatever it is, this story is a reminder. Turn around. Come back. Get back on a road that won't lead you to a wreck. And God is welcoming each and every one of us to that road. In fact, the reason you're in this room is because God is wooing, inviting you back to that road today. And we don't do that out of shame. We do that because we believe the story of Jesus, that this kingdom is breaking into the world, that we can experience true life, true peace, truth, trust, mutual love and care because of what Jesus has done. This new community is what we're invited into. Not a community of deception, but a community of truth. And so we ruthlessly eliminate deception so that we receive something abundantly better in our lives. And it's that sort of new life, trust and truth, peace and care and mutual love that our hearts are really longing for every day. That our world is desperately crying out for, a world full of deception. That life has come for you and for me. And so today, let's be people who ruthlessly eliminate our deception, so that we can live into this new, powerful reality, the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray.